Hey friends, my name is Christine Chapel, and you're listening to the Hope and Help podcast from the Institute for Biblical Counseling and Discipleship, where we host biblical conversations about life's challenging problems. In this episode, I chat with Eric Shoemaker about his book, Ours, Biblical Comfort for Men Grieving Miscarriage. For more help on the topics we discussed today, visit ibcd.org forward slash hope and help, where you can access notes from today's episode and browse related resources from our digital library. Before we get started, let me introduce you to our guest. Eric Shoemaker received his MDiv from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and is a pastor, author, and songwriter. He lives in Iowa with his five children, and you can find him online at emshoemaker.com. Hey there, Eric. Thank you so much for joining us again on the Hope and Help podcast. It's great to have you back. Yeah, thanks, Christine. I'm, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. I am looking forward to today's conversation. It's on a topic that we have never discussed on the Hope and Help podcast before, and it's in regards to a new book that you released over the summer entitled Ours, Biblical Comfort for Men Grieving Miscarriage. And so I would love, before we get started in our conversation, for you to spend a few minutes sharing about the background of this book and your motivation for writing it. Sure. Yeah, thank you. Uh my wife and I, you know, the, so the book is about how men grieve miscarriage. And, you know, growing up, miscarriage wasn't something that I was all that familiar with. I think the first time I'd heard of miscarriage that I can remember was maybe in high school and then didn't really hear anything about miscarriage again until maybe when we were in seminary and Jenny and I were married and, you know, the friends, people we were friends with were starting to have children. And so there were people having miscarriages and the first time I remember anybody really talking about their experience with miscarriage was uh, Russell Moore when I was in, he was my professor in seminary and he shared his experience of uh, he and Maria's miscarriages and how those impacted him. But beyond that, it wasn't something that I thought much about. And then uh, when Jenny and I started having children, you know, we had our first three sons were born without any complications. And then we had a miscarriage that was very early. And then we had our daughter and then we had two miscarriages in a row that were further along in the pregnancy. And those were much more difficult to face and, and brought new complications or new worries after we'd had two in a row because we still wanted to have more children and, you know, brought worries about whether or not we'd be able to have more children. And then we had our fifth child and we thought we were done. We ended up becoming pregnant and that child uh, was miscarried early in that pregnancy as well. And so I guess I would say I was caught off guard a bit in each of those. You know, I'd ministered to a few people who'd been open about their miscarriages in the church as a pastor. I've been pastoring for 20 years. And, but it was as a personal experience, I was really unacquainted and unprepared for the various feelings and emotions and temptations and experiences that I would face and that I would go through just with miscarriage in general. And then things I didn't expect as a husband and as a father. I tend to be a person who processes those things quite a bit internally. And I wasn't really able to find any resources to help me do that. 
you know, I think this has changed over the last 20 years, but I don't know that the church has always been well equipped for dealing with miscarriage. I think there's a lot more resources out now, particularly geared toward women. But even where churches respond intentionally to miscarriage, I think there's a, a lot of times where the husband and the father can be overlooked. And we think of this as solely or primarily a woman's loss. And there's distinct features of miscarriage that are obviously something the mother experiences that the, the father can't because she's the one that's been physically pregnant. But we forget, I think, that, you know, a child has two parents, a father and a mother, and that the loss of a child in the womb is a loss to both of those parents. And so Emily Jensen of the Risen Motherhood podcast and ministry had invited me to write uh, an article for their website that I think ended up being titled something like Dad's Hurt Too. But she wanted me to write about my experience as a father walking through miscarriage so that moms could know how to minister to their husbands um, or understand what they're going through. And that received a lot of good feedback. And it was very helpful for me just to process and writing my own experiences and be able to sort of realize and see some things I dealt with that I don't know that I'd really faced before. And so when Abby Wedgworth was writing her book, Held, for the Good Book Company, she asked if I'd contribute a short testimony to that book about my experience as a father. And I did. And when that book, Held, was released, it was, it's just a beautifully published, produced, and uh, wonderfully written resource that quickly became my go-to resource for miscarriage. And I immediately wrote uh, Carl at the Good Book Company and said, you really need to publish uh, a resource like this geared towards men because nothing exists. And I suppose I was a little bold in telling him, and I want to write it. <laughs> and they were willing to take a risk on uh, a resource that, as far as we know, there there isn't a Christian resource that's geared specifically towards men walking through miscarriage. And so I'm so glad they did. And uh, so many men and women have reached out just to say thanks for it because it's it's been much needed. And it's the it's the book I wish that I had you know, 20 years ago. And those always seem to be the the books that make such an impact. I think sometimes are those books that are written by people who have gone through some kind of experience and they're like, this is what I wish I would have known or I wish someone would have told me about facing this type of a, a challenge or a grief, you know, in a uh -huh. particular situation. And so thank you for, as I, I say with so many of my guests on the show who have resources written out of their own experiences, thank you for faithfully stewarding your story yeah. so that we can be comforted with the yeah. same comforts that you have received from God. I, I wanted to see if you might be able to help us think just real briefly before we even go further along in terms of like what would qualify as yeah. a miscarriage? Yeah, I'll, I'll read a portion from an appendix in our book. Uh, Jen Hesse uh, wrote a little appendix called Understanding the Medical Side of Miscarriage. It's basically to help men understand the terms and what's going on during a miscarriage. She writes in there that, and this is from Mayo Clinic, I believe, uh, in medical terms, a miscarriage is the spontaneous loss of a pregnancy any time in the first 20 weeks after conception. Uh, most miscarriages happen in the first 12 weeks of pregnancy, and the death of a baby at 20 or more weeks of pregnancy or during delivery is called a stillbirth. And a woman who experiences two or more miscarriages is said to have recurrent pregnancy loss. So I guess as we go along, I also wanted to just say that this conversation contains sub, uh, sensitive subject matter. We're mm -hmm. talking about things that you you saw, things that you went through, different struggles and, and questions that you had. And so just for the listener to kind of use your own discretion 
if this is something that you're going through that is fresh and just to listen, knowing that we'll be talking about some really hard things in this conversation, but hopefully with the goal of sharing God's comfort and the hope and help of Jesus Christ on a journey such as this. And so that being said, Eric, do you mind sharing a bit more about your own personal grief journey through pregnancy loss? For instance, what were some of the emotions or thoughts that took you by surprise as you walked through these losses with your family and with your wife? That's a great question. And I think, you know, there were several that, especially looking back, I was able to identify, you know, I dealt with a lot of shame, which took me by surprise. Of course, there was anger. There was fear. I think the shame was one that took me by surprise because there's no reason to feel any shame in a miscarriage. I suppose there's things we can do that would cause a miscarriage, you know, on accident. But by and large, you know, 99% of the time, a miscarriage is not your fault. It's nothing that either parent has done. It's a natural occurrence, so to speak. And you have zero control over that. And yet there's this, you know, I think as husbands and fathers, we feel this natural urge to protect our children. That's, that's normal for a mother or a father. We want to protect our children. And here's a situation in which our child lost their life and there was nothing that we could do to protect them. And there can be a sense of shame felt over that. Likewise, I think because so few men have talked about their miscarriage journey, you're not used to thinking this about this as something that men go through. And often because the sole focus is how the mother is doing in miscarriage, it can even feel selfish to talk about your own grief as you're walking through this. You don't know what to say to other men. Um, and and in some, sometimes there's this natural thing among men to we want to look strong, Talking about grief is seen as weakness, particularly as a pastor. And then in some theological circles, you're, you're sort of expected to put on a strong face and say, like Job, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Um, but you're supposed to say that with this sort of uh, victoriousness. You know, we're, we're forgetting that Job is sitting in, in ashes and scraping himself with pottery shards. And then also, so many people just don't know how to respond to miscarriage. You can feel like, oh, man, you know, I'm introducing this sorrow and I'm going to make them feel uncomfortable and I'm going to be the downer in this group. And there can just be this sense of shame. Like, I, I don't, I don't want to be this person. I don't want to be here. One instance that stands out that won't be common to every miscarriage, but my wife had to have a procedure called the DNC to remove the body of the baby and the, the materials that go with pregnancy in the womb because they weren't coming out naturally. And so the, the doctor invited me to sit in the room with her and said I could even sit beside her during the procedure. And I began to feel a little bit sort of queasy, which is unusual for me. You know, I've watched all our children being born without passing out or even feeling lightheaded. But for whatever reason, I began to feel not well. And then, of course, as you focus on that, it just gets worse. I moved to the back of the room and then I said, I just, you know, I was afraid I was going to pass out and the doctor's performing this delicate procedure and I, I didn't want to alarm him and have something go wrong that would injure my wife. And so I said, I, I just, I feel like I need to leave. And I went out to the waiting room. And as soon as I sat down, it's almost like Satan sat down on the chair next to me and was like, you call yourself a man. Like, you should be so ashamed of yourself. You just left your wife in there alone to go through this 
the sad and hard experience by herself. You're a failure as a man. You're a failure as a husband. And those are the kind of experiences that really took me off guard because I expected to be sad about the loss of the baby. I expected to be sad as we approached due dates and, you know, all those sorts of things. I didn't expect to feel this overwhelming sense of shame and weakness. And that wasn't really something I felt like I could open up to any other person about and say, I'm feeling really ashamed right now. And I don't know why. Wow. Well, thank you for sharing those bits of your story with us. I think that hopefully it's encouraging for you to be so open and honest and sharing some of those things with the listeners that they might know that if they too are struggling with those particular thoughts or emotions, that they are not alone in that struggle. I appreciate that you begin the book by asking the question, have I really lost a child? Hmm. Particularly for those whose miscarriage occurred early in their baby's development, this question may be one of those thoughts that come to mind, but perhaps men either don't know what to do with that question if it comes up, or they're afraid, like you said, of even expressing that or Mm -hmm. voicing it to somebody else and saying, I'm thinking this and I don't really know what to make of it. So can you talk a bit about why you ask that question and its practical application to men who are grieving miscarriage? Well, miscarriage is a very unseen experience. You know, in those first 20 weeks, most people aren't showing, uh, you know, most women aren't showing the pregnancy. If you haven't announced it, unless you have severe morning sickness or something, you know, a lot of people aren't going to notice and aren't going to know. And so they... A lot of people even in response then to the miscarriage, if you haven't shared it with anyone, they haven't been growing in their excitement with you. And so it's very hard for them to experience the same level of grief with you because they might be learning about the pregnancy at the same time they're learning about the miscarriage. And we live in a culture that literally debates whether or not what's in the womb is a, is a baby, is a life. And that has rights and value and sanctity. And so it can feel like we can know intellectually uh, or even theologically, this is a child, this is a baby, but it can feel very different than if this was an infant that had you know, died of sudden infant death syndrome. And I think even sometimes that question minimizes the loss And when the loss is minimized, then it can't be grieved fully for what it is. And even sometimes I think those, well, not just those facing infertility, but even the church community around those battling infertility, when there's miscarriages happening, we can say things like, uh, we want so badly to be parents. I want so badly to be a father, but we haven't been able to have children or They want to be parents, but, you know, every time they've become pregnant, they've miscarried. And that language actually denies that the conceived was actually their baby and that they are parents who have lost children that they weren't able to meet through a live birth. I really wanted to ask that question because I think answering that question with a yes, you have really lost a baby, gives freedom and permission to a couple to grieve their miscarriage as the loss of a child. So the book Hours is a 31-day devotional that walks through the Gospel of Luke. And so each day, it takes a portion of Luke from start to finish and asks questions. And and that, that question, I think might be chapter one, have I really lost a child? And, you know, what we're beginning with at the beginning of Luke is this story of Zechariah and Elizabeth. 
And, you know, of course, it's wonderful, isn't it, that the story starts with a barren couple uh, who aren't able to have children. They probably did experience the loss of children through miscarriage. And the Lord says that they were righteous, which is also just a wonderful comfort that their inability to have living children wasn't a curse from God. But it starts with this interest of God in what's going on in the womb. And of course, Elizabeth conceives and then Mary conceives. And the scene we're looking at is is what's going on in the wombs of these two women. And when they first meet, uh, Elizabeth says that the baby in her womb leapt for joy in the presence of his Savior, of his Lord. That tells us right there, uh, she refers to this as a baby who, to whatever degree, is aware of the presence of his Lord. I don't know if that, if she means by that, I, I, I doubt she means by that conscious thought, but something's going on there. Later on, when Jesus is born, uh, Luke records that she took the baby and placed him in a manger. And the word for baby there that's placed in the manger is the same Greek word for what leaps in Mary's womb. The Lord doesn't see a difference between what is growing and developing in the womb and what is crying or sleeping in the manger. They are both babies, uh, little ones, little human beings. I think recognizing that gives a couple permission to grieve the loss of a, a real and genuine baby. You also acknowledge the fact that miscarriage reminds us of how little, like you said earlier in the beginning, how little control we have over our stories. Mm -hmm. And there was something that you wrote that really stood out to me. I want to share. You write, quote, I felt so weak and helpless, unable to do anything to guarantee the baby's safety in my wife's womb. Neither the doctors nor I could stop death. After my wife delivered our baby, I watched her bleed. The nurses rushed her to surgery. All I could do was sit in our room alone and pray. I did not control the outcome. That is a heartbreaking account of something really traumatic. And I'm sure that fathers who have experienced something similar know all too well the pain that that kind of helplessness produces. How can fathers even begin to deal with the uncertainty that often swells post-miscarriage? That's a great question. Miscarriage is, is painful in a lot of surprising ways. Part of that deep pain is, like you said, that we're helpless. There's nothing that we can do to stop or prevent that. And it happens as we're pursuing such a good end, you know, a human life. We're wanting to produce a living human being that we can love and raise and see them grow up and live a life that glorifies God. And the only way that a baby is born is going through a pregnancy. And we can become parents through adopting a baby that has had a live birth, or we can walk through a pregnancy that ends in a live birth. Of course, there's often a very deep desire to become a parent through having biological children. And there's good reasons for that. You know, God designed our bodies to do that. But once we've experienced that pain, we know that the only way to get to that desired end of having biological children is to walk through an experience, to walk through a pregnancy that could result in a miscarriage. There's a sort of conditioning that goes on. If, uh, you know, you're driving uh, somewhere and you're in a very traumatic car accident, 
it can be very hard for you to take that route again to get there. But this is the only route if you want to have biological children. Oh, how do we begin to to deal with that uncertainty? I think the first thing I want to say is I don't know that there's really an easy answer there because there is no promise that we will end up having biological children. That is That is not promised to us despite what people with good intentions say, you know, don't worry about her. You won't miscarry again. There might be statistics that say it's unlikely depending on our circumstances, but no one can say that with full certainty. I think we need to recognize and honor that and say there is uncertainty here. And then we go to the one who has certainty about our circumstances. And that, of course, is God the Father. And Jesus asks us those questions about why are you anxious about tomorrow? Your anxiety can't add a single day to your life. And your anxiety can't add a single day to the life of your baby in the womb. We have a father who clothes the lilies of the field. He cares about the sparrows who are considered to be essentially worthless birds. Um, If he cares about sparrows, how much more does he care about the child in your womb and about you? He invites us to sell everything we have and give it away Jesus says, because the father, it's his pleasure to give you the kingdom. It makes him happy to give you uh, his whole kingdom in Christ. And the guarantee and the demonstration that he is always for us and that nothing can separate us from his love is that he's given his son for us. He's a father who knows what it's like to experience the death of a child. And uh, he did that willfully. He gave his son to die for us. And so we're guaranteed that he will freely give us all things in Christ. He doesn't promise us a pregnancy that goes full term and results in a live birth, but he does promise us his his son and he promises us his kingdom. And I think we deal with the uncertainty that comes post miscarriage, like we deal with the uncertainty of all of life is that we learn and train our minds and our hearts to be fully satisfied and rooted in the death and resurrection of Jesus on our behalf. Even as you navigate the uncertainty that comes, understandably, especially after going through something so traumatic in some instances, depending on how the miscarriage unfolded, I think I appreciate that you recognize that there's also this sense in which we might feel as though we've been hurt by God himself, that since he allowed this miscarriage to happen, then perhaps we cannot trust him like we did maybe before anything Mm -hmm. went wrong in the pregnancy. What can we know about what Jesus is doing in the midst of our grief and how might that bring a grieving father comfort? Yeah. Oh, that is such a good observation. You know, on the one hand, we feel the sense of being hurt by God And I think if we're people who have a rich and I think biblical understanding of God's sovereignty, there's a sense in which we answer that question in the positive. Yes, we have been hurt by God. He is the one who reigns over everything that comes to pass. And he's the one who is sovereign over the things even that hurt us. And that's hard to hear and hard to feel, but it's it's ultimately a very comforting thing because if he's not sovereign over those things, what use is there to trust him in the midst of this? He couldn't stop it. And so how does trusting him help us? He couldn't prevent it the first time. He can't prevent it the second time. And there's a there's a way in which God has hurt us in allowing a miscarriage to happen. But then it can challenge us, like you said, that maybe we can't trust him like we did before. And I think what's important in that is to realize God has not changed 
before, during, or after our miscarriage. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so what's changed is our understanding of God. We've suddenly come to see that, you know, like we read in the Chronicles of Narnia, is God safe? And that depends on what we mean by safe, of course. Uh, There's a way in which we can say, no, he's not safe, but he's good. Because we mean by safe is he might lead us into danger and it might be painful. Uh, But of course he's safe because he's good. Because the ultimate harms that can befall us will never befall us. Because we're safe in Christ. What is Jesus doing in the midst of our grief? There's a couple ways we can answer that. And one is we don't know in the sense that we don't know the specific things that he's doing. You know, the implications of our life and what he's doing just in our personal lives and then in the lives of people around us and in the world, uh, we can't even begin to fathom the millions of ways that he's working through our lives that we will never see this side of glory. But then we can also say we know that, you know, we never want to pl- apply Romans eight twenty eight haphazardly, but we know that he is working all things together for our good. And, you know, part of that passage there in Romans is that Paul says he's working all things together for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. And that purpose is that we might be uh, not only justified, but sanctified. We're predestined to be conformed into the image of Jesus. And Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. That process of learning obedience is what we call discipline. And discipline isn't just when we've done something wrong. Discipline is training ourselves uh, like a basketball player in practice to be able to perform in the right ways and act in the right way. And uh, Jesus was put into painful situations, suffering to learn obedience as a human being. And so part of what God is doing in, in this is he's conforming us into the image and likeness of Christ through what we suffer. And he's teaching us in, in probably one of the most painful ways that we'll ever be taught. Um, how to trust him as a good father and how to trust Jesus as as a good big brother that we can trust to carry us, carry us through this and all the painful things of life into something that's better. As Christians, we don't naturally know how to grieve with the help of Christ. So when death unexpectedly visits our families, it can be a challenge to our very core beliefs. You write, quote, Miscarriage can challenge our faith and not just our hope about childbearing. It challenges our hope in God, tempting us to despair of God's goodness, faithfulness, and provision. Is God withholding what we need to be happy? Mm. That was, I think, a really uh, honest question that perhaps many fathers who are grieving miscarriage can resonate with. Can you talk about what the temptation to despair might look like for a grieving father and how he could fight against it? Yeah. Um, Thank you for reading that quote. One of the weird things about being an author is you forget what you've written. (laughs) And, you know, that question, is God withholding what we need to be happy? is a question I think we face all of our days, but is so acute in the midst of miscarriage. And, oh, the temptation to despair as a grieving father. I think we all as parents walk into parenting with hopes and dreams. And they're not bad hopes and dreams. Like there's nothing wrong with dreaming about being a father and hoping to be a father. There's nothing wrong with looking forward to playing football with our son in the backyard and wrestling with our daughter on the living room floor. You know, all, all these experiences, whatever it is we want to do with our kids. There's, there's nothing wrong with those dreams unless 
those dreams are necessary for our ultimate happiness. And that's a true statement about every good gift the Father gives. There's nothing wrong with wanting and enjoying good things unless we have a mindset that says, I cannot have ultimate life and I cannot ultimately be happy unless I have these things. Jesus was never a father. He never fathered a child. He never experienced raising a child or watching the delivery of his own son or daughter. And he, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. He walked a life of faith where we failed to walk a life of faith. And he believed that being obedient, even to the point of death on a cross, to losing literally everything in the world, his own life, and in a sense, in bearing the curse, his immediate experience of fellowship with the Father, he believed on the other side of that there was joy. And that's what it means to take up our cross and to follow him. And so it's a really painful, dark, hard wrestling with despair to say, hmm. even if he doesn't give me a child that I get to see born alive and enjoy life with on earth, does that mean I must despair of all good and all light and all happiness forever? That's a real challenge to our faith, but I think it's again answered by looking squarely at a crucified and risen Savior. You know, so some of the ways that I think we as uh, men, as fathers, might be tempted to wrestle with our own despair is by turning to earthly comforts to replace the comfort of the cross. That could be indulging in other good gifts like overeating. We turn to food or maybe we turn to work just to forget about the fact that we are wrestling with the loss of a child. We could turn to risky behavior. Men could turn to drunkenness or drug abuse or pornography as distractions from the pain or even idols of provision. I'm going to replace my hope of having a child with having all this other stuff that's going to fill my life. And all those are poor substitutes for Christ. Now, Eric, you mentioned that miscarriage can challenge our hope about childbearing. And you specifically referenced Psalm 127 as a sore spot for those who have miscarried or are struggling to conceive. I'd like to read that real fast just for the listener. Um, Psalm 27, verse 3 through 5 reads, Children are a heritage from the Lord, offspring a reward from him. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are children born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. Now, you write in relation to that scripture, quote, As miscarriage after miscarriage comes, these words torment the soul. If children are a reward from the Lord, what have I done wrong? Again, another question that I think many uh, listeners can relate to if this is a grief that they're walking through. So how might we rightly interpret Psalm 127 and process this kind of question? Probably right to the heart of the matter to ask the question, well, what did Jesus do wrong? Because he had no children. Why did God withhold that reward from him? And of course, he didn't do anything wrong and he was sinless. And I think some of this is understanding the nature of blessing. And I think some of this is understanding the context in which Psalm 127 was written. 
And some of that is a theological matter where I do believe children continue to be a blessing. They are a gift from God. But also Psalm 127 is written in the context of Old Covenant Israel, where for the nation, if the nation was disobedient, they were brought under curses. And some of those curses were miscarriage that the people would would miscarry. And so there's a reminder there that the righteous person or the righteous nation in that context is being rewarded with children because Israel, as God's people, was a geopolitical nation and they would grow and they would prosper physically. And now under the new covenant, the way that, you know, God's people are fruitful and they multiply and they fill the earth and they subdue it is through people experiencing second birth, regeneration through the new covenant ministry of the gospel. And so as we're a people who live in this old world that's under a curse, but we're born again into a new kingdom, the nature of blessing looks really upside down. And so we have Jesus saying things like, blessed are you who are poor because the kingdom of God is yours. Blessed are you who are hungry now because you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now because you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you, insult you and slander you. Your name is evil because of the son of man. Even under the old covenant, Israel, when they were cursed, they would become, their land would be ransacked. They'd be poor. They would be hungry. They would weep. And if they obeyed God, they'd be blessed. But now we have a savior who has fulfilled the law on our behalf. And he has given us everything in, in himself and in his kingdom, which is coming with him. And so life in this world, the blessed people are those who look like they have nothing, whose arms are empty and who are weeping because they have nothing in this world. It's a life that you live not by sight, not by seeing God's blessings in your hands and in your cradles. It's a life that's lived by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. Eric, it's well known that anger is part of the grieving process. Not only might a father experience increased feelings of anxiety post-miscarriage, like we talked about earlier with uncertainty, but he may also be feeling more quick to anger during this time as well. So in what ways were you tempted to anger after your babies died? And what did you learn to do about it? I think that one thing we can do is to ask ourselves a question. And this, this of course, is good advice for any emotion that we're experiencing. What is it that I'm wanting? I think most emotions come with their own unique sort of desire that's underneath it. And anger tends to be produced by a desire for justice. Uh, We tend to get angry when we feel like an injustice has been done. And I want this to be set right. And I'm tempted to believe that my anger can produce the righteousness of God, which of course it can't do. Anger can be righteous and it can be unrighteous. And so to ask myself the question, what is it that I want? My anger might be popping up in a couple different situations. So One of those might be, I'm angry at God because I believe that I deserve a baby and God has denied me what I deserve. And so that anger is an accusation of injustice against God. And when I can put it in those terms, sometimes it it can happen suddenly and sometimes like Maybe like Job, it can take a really long time. But we see, yeah, I, I, can't, I can't accuse God of being unjust. His, his fundamental nature is that he's righteous and he does what's right. 
And so we need to learn then to repent of that and to say, Lord, I feel a lot of anger against you. I'm angry at you because I feel like you've denied me what is my right to have. And I'm thankful that through the righteousness of Christ and through his death on my behalf, you've forgiven me of that unrighteous anger toward you. And I'm asking you to please train my heart to believe that you are righteous and there's no just reason to be angry at you. On the other hand, it could be righteous anger. I remember going out to my car to go to the store to pick up a prescription for Jenny after one of our miscarriages and turning on the radio. And there, it was during a season where there was some legislation in Iowa debating abortion legislation. And it was pertaining to allowing a medical abortion, elective abortion in the first 20 weeks of a pregnancy. And this legislator who was pro-abortion for this law, he was saying, I don't know what the big deal is. It's only up to this many weeks. And I think the week that he named was the same week that our child was at that we just lost. And he was denying the dignity and the sanctity of our child. He was treating it as a just. It's not a big deal. I don't know why anybody would be upset about ending a pregnancy at this point. And there's a sense in which I think I have a right to be angry because he has sinfully denigrated the value of my child. Now, what do I do with that? I could drive to the state capitol of Iowa and find his office and give him a piece of my mind. I guess there might be righteous ways in which I could do that, but it's not going to produce the righteousness of God, at least not in that moment. You know, if I decide not to go to the pharmacy and instead drive to Des Moines, I'm not loving my wife, certainly. And me stewing in that anger isn't going to change anything. And so it has to come down to never avenge yourselves. Vengeance is the Lord's. And this politician is appointed by God as his servant in the state to restrain evil and to promote what's good for society. And he's not doing that. And one day he's going to stand before the judge of all the earth and give an account for how he ruled. I don't need to worry about that anymore. I can trust that God will deal with that better than I ever could. Awesome. Well, Eric, we have run out of time for today. So I'm so thankful for the comfort and encouragements that you have offered in this conversation. But before we let you go, I would love to invite you to do something that I ask every guest of the Hope and Help podcast to do, which is to speak directly to the audience. There may be a father listening today who is grieving the miscarriage of his baby. What would you say to this man to comfort him with the hope and help of Jesus Christ? I think what I would say to that man is, you are seen by God. You are seen by Christ, your Savior, and you're understood by Jesus. You know, the author of Hebrews says that he had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every respect so that he could be a merciful high priest, not only to make atonement for our sins, but so that he could give us help in time of need, in temptation. Uh, he was tempted in every way that we are, but without sin, so that he could sympathize with our weaknesses. And so his application there is that we can go boldly before the throne of grace. You don't need to be timid in approaching Jesus in this loss, because even though he never fathered a child and never walked through miscarriage, in some way, he walked through experiences in life so that it could be said he's become like us in every respect and he can sympathize with us in every temptation. So 
Jesus knows this experience not only as well as you do, but better than you do. And he's given his life for you to atone for your sins, which means he's not angry with you. He loves you and he's devoted to your good. And you can go before his throne to find grace and mercy and help. He knows better how to help you right now than you do. And he wants to help you. And so even though everything seems uncertain and confusing and painful and dark right now, go to Jesus full of faith because he's for you and he will help you. Thank you so much, Eric, for those words of encouragement. I want to let the listener know, as always, if you are interested in learning more about Eric's book, Ours, Biblical Comfort for Men Grieving Miscarriage, you can scroll down in the show notes, click the link there. That will take you to a page on IBCD's website where you can access all of that information. And Eric, if there's someone listening who wants to get connected with you and your ministry, you have a number of books, and I know that you are a pastor and you have written articles. So where can they go online to find you? Yeah, you can you can head to my uh, website, which is ericshoemaker.com. And my last name, Shoemaker, is not spelled like it sounds. It's uh, S-C-H-U-M-A-C-H-E-R. Um, you can search for me on social media. And I tend to be fairly active on Twitter and Instagram and a little bit on Facebook. And you'll you'll find links links there. Awesome. Well, thank you again, Eric, for coming back to the show. I'm really thankful, as I said at the beginning, that you stewarded your story for the purposes of creating this project. I do hope that it blesses many. And so thanks again, Eric, for joining us today. Yeah, thanks, Christine. Before we let you go, I'd like to remind you to visit ibcd.org forward slash hope and help. There you can check out the show notes from today's episode. If you enjoyed today's conversation, why not subscribe to the podcast? That way you'll be notified when new episodes release. Also, please don't keep the Hope and Help podcast a secret. If you know someone who could be encouraged by listening to this episode, please do them a favor by sharing it. Thanks so much for listening to today's show. Be sure to join us next time on the Hope and Help podcast.